Aloha. We're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. I've had a thought on my mind for about a week, and uh, I found myself praying this thought over and over, and I've just been telling the Lord that you're undefeated. You're undefeated. And I can't get past this thought. And I I just feel like he rides upon that truth, upon the angels and on the clouds, is that he's undefeated. And he has a perfect track record throughout all of history. Or he's never once lost. He's never had a tie. He's undefeated. He always wins. And we get to partner with him. And I, I, I feel something different on my heart tonight, even than where I wanted to go. But can you guys just close your eyes? I felt like this is what the Lord wants to say tonight. He said, where are the hungry ones? Because he will pass over a million satisfied people to find one hungry person. And we know this, that that we are the church. This isn't something we get to come and do. This is something we, we gather and are. And he keeps saying, where are the hungry ones? Where are the hungry ones? And so even, even as you're receiving him, as you're returning your affection to him, I want you to take a risk. If you, and don't stand up to humor me. I'm not impressed by that. I don't think God is impressed by that. But if you actually can say, and you can stand and look at him and say, I'm so hungry. I'm so desperate for more of him. Would you stand up? You don't get brownie points for standing. But I feel like he's asking, where are my hungry ones? Hold your hands up. Give him your affection. Right, that word Abba, when Jesus says Abba, Father, Abba means Papa, and it's something that a little child would hold his arms out to say to, to his, his father. Abba, Father. Father, would you come and mark the holy ones? Would you mark the hungry ones? I don't feel like some of you were prepared to be marked tonight, but ask him if you're really hungry. Mark me, Abba. Mark me, Father. Mark this generation. Mark this group. Mark this house. If there's one that you came for, receive him. Father, get them. Get the hungry ones. Now, for 30 seconds, I want you to find a neighbor, and you're going to pray for the glory of the Lord to fall on them, for the blessing of the Lord, for his anointing to fall on them. Pray for them like you would want to be prayed for. If you're standing next to a hungry one, get him. He rewards the hunger. Yeah, bless him, God. Bless him. In Jesus' name, amen. Give him a hug.
Have a seat. I need you to maintain your hunger tonight, though. I need you to maintain your hunger as a lifestyle. And I know that's a big ask, but I feel like this is where the Lord's taking us. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the religious spirit. We talked about it two weeks ago when I was um, preaching to you guys last. And I, I felt like the Lord asked me a question, like, why do you think I'm having you talk about the religious spirit? Um, you know, we don't want to become a church that emphasizes what we don't believe in or what we don't support. And so I said, I don't know, God. And he said, because where we're going, we can't take the religious spirit with us. And a couple of weeks ago, I had a lot of people uh, respond to that, that prayer that we made, um, that if you've been impacted or if you've carried the religious spirit or if you have wounds from the religious spirit. And there was a lot of people who got set free that night. And I know we've talked about this in the past. This is a real thing. And it's very interesting that the religious spirit comes and attacks the church. It doesn't attack the world. It attacks those who are believers. This week, uh, I got to talk to uh, one of my heroes. His name is Bill Johnson. He's uh, an amazing guy. We, our team got to sit in and have a 38-minute conversation. It was glorious. We counted every minute. We rounded up, so we're like, well, that's really 40 minutes. And then we're like, well, that's basically an hour. And a day with the Lord is like a 1,000 years. So basically, we lived... Uh, for, yeah, yeah, it's a long time. Essentially a lifetime in one meeting. Well, Bill is somebody who I, um, he's a hero. Um, he's the only living hero I have. Most of my heroes are dead. Their names are Smith Wigglesworth, John G. Lake, all those great guys. Everything that I've learned about the kingdom of God, about revival, and about hosting his presence, I've learned from Bill. Uh, this man has impacted my life more than anybody else. And those are big words. Um, he's truly a hero. I've never met somebody with a purer heart who's been more generous, uh, who's better behind the scenes than he is on the stage. He's, he's a legend. And so we got to talk to him, and we got to talk to him about hosting the presence of the Lord and glory clouds and all kinds of fun stuff. But we wanted to ask things that we couldn't find on a YouTube clip or that we couldn't turn to page 37 of his latest book and just read about. Like, I wanted to hear specific things. And one of the things that was really messing with me that week, uh, long before we sat with Bill, was I was thinking about purity. And I really wanted to know, we were thinking all week, like, what should we ask Bill? What, you know, what do you ask somebody when you have, like, one shot? And while we were leading up to the meeting, um, I told the team, I don't think they realize this, but I just started thinking about um, grieving the Lord. And that's literally the most terrifying thought to me is that I would grieve his heart, that he's here, you know, searching all eternity long just to find me. And then at, when he finds me, that I would grieve him somehow. And so we got to ask him any mistakes that he's made in stewarding the presence. And I got emotional, and uh, I, I got <laughs> a few tears in my eyes as I was asking him these questions, thinking about grieving the Lord. And it just made me start to think about the things that we say at our church. Um, these aren't catchy sayings that we're giving to you guys. These are actual truths where we want to find out whatever the Lord is doing in our generation and give our whole lives to it. And yes, I want to find out what he's doing in my generation, and I want to find out what he's doing in my lifetime. But part of finding out what he's doing in my generation is finding out what he's doing in this moment. Do you see the difference? And I, I never want to become so 
just centered on the moment that I miss the generation, but I never want to become so broad that I see the generation and miss the moment. It's a both and. And I, I, all week long while we were in Reading, I just kept thinking about how, oh, I just never want to grieve you, God. It, it wrecks me to think about the dove looking for a landing spot and he can't land on me. We have to remember that he's a person. And we have to remember that he has emotion and he has feelings and he has a heartbeat. And I want to know his heartbeat, not just for my generation, but right now in this minute, what is his heartbeat? What is he thinking about? What is he processing? And I remember years ago just reading uh, about Catherine Kuhlman and how she would stand on stage and she would weep. And she would tell the audience, please, please don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He's all that I have. And she would sob because people there had turned their affections away from him, that they had turned their hearts away from a posture of adoration, that they weren't giving him a place to land. We don't use him to get gifts. And we don't use him to get authority. And we don't use him to get anointing or influence or go down the list. He's not a tool. We don't use him. We follow him. And when we had this amazing opportunity to talk to Bill, I, I began to choke up and tears came to my eyes because I was thinking about steadying the ark when the oxen stumbled and just how quick of an instinct that is if your heart isn't bent on obedience and if your heart isn't on this bent of adoring him, you will try to put your hands on his presence and it will kill you. You can't control him. We have to stop pretending that we're the special ones instead of him. We have to stop pretending that we have the keys to breakthrough because he is breakthrough. We never put our stamp on what he's doing and hope that people see us in this move of God. I've just been wrecked by this thought. It's a move of God. Everyone wants to lead a move of God, but you don't lead a move of God. God leads a move of God. You follow him always. Beware of anyone trying to take ownership of a move of God. Beware of anyone who wants to put their name on it. There's only one name that gets to go on it, and it's his name, it's his move, and we move with him. It's a move of God. And listen, I, I hate to break it to some of you in this room, but the cloud doesn't follow us. We follow the cloud. Okay? And it grieves me to see when people try to lay hold and claim a move of God as their own. And, you know, laying hold of the move of God instead of the presence of God. Like he's desperate for us to lay hold of him. I heard a quote by Larry Randolph this week. And he said, how would the world be different if they let the ark fall and the presence got out of the box? We're so quick to try to steady the cart. Thinking that a move of God is ours or theirs is the minute that God takes his hand off of things. It's the minute that he realizes that we think we have ownership when he's saying, don't you understand? I'm the author and perfecter. I'm the alpha and omega. The religious spirit wants to take ownership of things because it wants authority at any cost. That's all it wants is authority, is to be proven right. And let me tell you, it's impossible to own the movement of the king of kings. 
And it's impossible to lead the shepherd. The shepherd leads the sheep. We never dictate what he's doing. We join what he's doing. And so thinking about this idea of purity, like is my, is my heart actually pure at all times towards him? What I've seen happen in the past um, in our own church, in uh, our ministry, at our school, uh, in past environments, we've seen this a lot, is that people will come to build their own ministry. They'll want to join in because it benefits them, and they'll build their own ministry. And as they build it, because of what they carry aligns with the house, it'll actually bless the house, right? But then others come to actually build the house. And I'll explain that. In other words, what we do as a church family is we gather on Sundays as the church and we offer people the opportunity to come and be built and to be grown and to join in with what he's doing, to participate, to co-labor. There's actually work involved. And some people love it and they want to they wanna join in and they see this umbrella of a church and they think, I'm going to come and plant my own seed because those seeds will be grown and watered under this umbrella. And some of those seeds actually align with the church. And for a season, it actually blesses the church. The problem is that the heart isn't fully pure in that situation. And when people try to build their kingdom, yeah, it's attractive to see the fertile soil of the kingdom under these umbrellas, and that works great for them, and sometimes it works great for the church, and sometimes it works great for the school, but then there's other people who come with the sole focus of joining the family to be family. They come with the sole intent to build his house and join in his work. Are you with me? Do you hear me? Okay. There's a difference between joining to give and joining to get, and it looks very similar with the naked eye. It looks very similar from the flesh, but it's purity that separates the two. Is Milton in here? Carter, go grab Milton. I want to brag on Milton because Milton, I feel like, is somebody who came to build the house. When I was thinking about this this week, the Lord just kept highlighting Milton. And I want to talk about Milton for just a second. When we met Milton and we saw the Lord's hand on this man, we didn't look at him and think, oh, there's such a massive anointing on Milton's life. We have to put him on our leadership team. Look how anointed he is. Look at his giftings. Let's stick him on the team. No, Milton was put on leadership because he came to serve and build the house. Do you understand? Milton is part of our leadership because he carries the vision of the house and he made it his own DNA. Milton pours, he pours himself out selflessly because that's what God is doing here. And he joins in with what God is doing. And I feel like when, and I could say this about 50 people in this room, honestly, like I, I just, it's just the Lord was highlighting him. But Milton came with bricks and he started building based on the Lord's blueprints and building with what God was building here at this house. He didn't come to grow his ministry under the reunion umbrella. He probably could have, but he didn't. 
And I need you to see the difference between or understanding this difference that he wasn't promoted because of his talent or anointed. He was promoted because of his heart. In 1 Samuel, there's a king named Saul. And Saul is chosen by the prophet Samuel. He's anointed as king. Do you understand? He was anointed to be king. And it wasn't just, oh, you know, maybe this guy. No, he was anointed to be king by God through a prophet. Everything was stacked for Saul. The hand of God, the hand of man. And here's the deal. While Saul was still anointed for that title, while he was still anointed, he was removed because he was disobedient. He was removed because of his heart, even though he was anointed. Never become impressed by anointing. Never become impressed by anointing. Anointing is simply a gift from the Lord. If you're going to be impressed, be impressed by the Lord because he anoints people. Do we desire more anointing? Absolutely. Do we pray for more anointing? Absolutely. Do we have those who have great levels of anointing come and impart to us? Absolutely. All of that's well and good, but never become impressed with somebody's gift as if they were the ones who created it. When somebody has a high gifting or a high anointing, all it means is that they're good at receiving. They have a really good dad who loves to lavish us with gifts. I'm not impressed with the gifts. I'm not impressed with the anointing. Do I want to grow in it? Absolutely. But I'm not impressed by it. Am I impressed by the one who anoints? Yeah. Yeah. And we've had many people over the years... um, it's fun, it makes for fun staff meetings to have these conversations. But a lot of people have come to us and said, like, I don't think you understand how much experience I have in X, Y, and Z. I don't know if you've seen me operate in my anointing. It's really powerful. I have these great giftings and anointings in these areas. You need to put me in leadership. You need to invest in me because what the Lord is doing on my life. Listen, it happens more than you think. Happens more than you think. Guess how many of those people have ever been put into leadership in our circles? Have they been anointed? Absolutely. They have major anointings on their life. But Saul didn't remain king even though he was anointed. The church is not here to bless your ministry. You are the church and you're here to bless him. And we have a friend um, who we got to meet with this week. His name's Dave. And Dave told me this story a few years ago that when he first got to Bethel, when he first got to this church, Dave has a very apostolic heart. He's a builder. He loves to equip. He loves to do things. He loves to start things. And he comes to his very first staff meeting ever at the church. And he, you know, all the big wigs are there. All the senior leaders are there. And he looks around and they say, like, hey, Dave, who are you? Tell us about yourself. He says, well, I'm here and I want to do this. I want to grow this. I have this call in my life that I want to do that. And everyone went around the circle and, you know, clapped and like, wow, that's awesome. And then Bill Johnson pulls Dave into his office and he said to Dave, "Um, hey, Dave, that's really great. I love that the Lord has equipped you and anointed you for those things. But I won't invest into your vision until you show me that you can invest into mine. In other words, you have to be here for the house first and not yourself. 
you actually have to die to self in the things that you're called to do based on what the Lord is doing here as a whole. And I think that this is where a lot of people get tripped up. Honestly, building of the bride, the capital B bride, the capital C church, often comes at the expense of building our own kingdom. We're not here to build our own kingdoms. We're here to build his kingdom. And the vision for his house, scripturally and in church history, the vision for his house actually has to be a greater focus than my personal ambition, than the things that I want to do. Jesus Christ modeled it himself. He said, be it unto me according to your will. Not my will, but your will be done. With that said, in a healthy environment, good leaders put others on their shoulders. They actually are the ground floor that others get to stand upon and go further and do greater things. Uh, I, I don't have slides for this, but I want to read you a passage out of Luke 17. I think that this is something that you don't hear many people with the religious spirit talk about. If you want to follow along, it's um, Luke 17, 5 through 10. And I want you to notice the context. It says, that the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So here they are coming to Jesus and they say, increase our faith. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea. And it would obey you. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him, will say to the slave when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded to you, Say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only which was which we ought to have done. And that sounds harsh when Jesus is like, and when you've served me, then you say, we're unworthy slaves. We've only done that which we knew we should have done. Well, that sounds harsh, but it's not actually, it loses something in the translation. What that's saying when it says we're unworthy slaves, it means we're useless as in we're useless without him. It's not that you don't have value. It's without him, without him being served first, we actually become useless. When we seek ourselves first, when we seek to be served and had our needs met first, when we gather, the Lord actually finds us unworthy of the praise that he wants to give us. He finds us unworthy of being in first place. And I feel like that's how too many people look at going to church. When they say, I'll come serve the house if the house will serve me first. And Jesus literally says, that's the opposite of the kingdom of God. He's saying, I'm the master. I need to come in and eat and you need to serve me. And you'll get what I promised you. But I have to be the prize. I have to be the reward when you gather. This isn't for us, it's for him. Okay, that was all intro. <laughs> I didn't. We're just going to see where we go tonight. Let's finish talking about the religious spirit. And again, I don't want to try to create a whole bunch of doctrines around things that we're against. Uh, our goal is not to become a house that is anti-religious spirit. 
right? We're not going to paint that on the walls and make flyers that say we're against the, the religious spirit. No, we actually as a house don't necessarily spend very much time talking about what we're against because we are focused on one thing and one thing only. And we preach the kingdom and we focus on him. And we look at the king and we talk about him. We never focus on the enemy. We're not going to allow our attention to be shifted off of the prize and onto lesser things. And so when we talk about the religious spirit, we're not focusing on the enemy. We're not focused on his work, but we will expose him and we will see that he has schemes that we can avoid. The more that we understand that the enemy hates to be identified that he's a coward and he realizes that he has no power and no authority. We've talked about this for a couple of weeks. How does the enemy actually get power and authority? He partners with us. We give it to him. We believe his lies. The only way that he can actually get power and authority is into deceiving us into partnering with him. The enemy hates to be identified. He hides in the shadows because he is terrified of light. Light exposes him and light wins. So what we're doing when we're talking about this religious spirit is we're exposing it as, as a Satan's weapon. And again, we need to expose these things because where we're going, it can't come along. The enemy has no retaliation against truth because truth sets people free. And the minute that we can identify it, whoop, that's the scheme of the enemy, is the minute that we get set free. We don't have to partner with it anymore. So we preach Christ and we preach what he's accomplished because he always wins. He's undefeated. And when we identify the religious spirit, it sends shockwaves into places that we never actually have to go. Did you know that the Bible says that God is light? There's no shifting shadows in him. He is all light all the time. And when we walk with him, we actually carry him. We're actually never in the shadows. People send me to say, send me to the deepest, darkest corners of the world, right? Well, if you're a Christian, there are no deep, dark corners. You carry the brightest light in the existence. Everywhere you go, that's where light is. And he gets exposed and he's afraid of us. Okay. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this passage. It's Mark 8, 15. Jesus is speaking, and it says, And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And we talked about these two leavens of the mind, and, and this idea that leaven in the natural, it's added to dough to do what? What does leaven do? Makes it rise. And a tiny, tiny amount of leaven will actually spread throughout the whole dough, and it will impact the entire batch. Jesus uses this leaven metaphor to explain that spiritual leaven is actually able to spread throughout and influence our whole thought process. A little bit of leaven can actually take over your mind. It's the lens that we use. Go to the next slide. Jesus warns about these two leavens. The leaven of the Pharisees, which is the religious spirit, and the leaven of Herod, which is the political spirit. And again, we talked about this. Satan is not creative. He doesn't have a creative bone in his body. All he can do is copy. And he makes counterfeits. The religious spirit and the political spirit are actually counterfeit, counterfeits. And they try to steal two things that we actually have in our inheritance through the cross. Authority and power. Because Jesus says you have how much authority? All authority. And how much power? 
all of it. So what does Satan want? He, he even just wants a little bit. The religious spirit wants authority at all costs, and the political spirit wants power at all costs. And it's interesting that leaven actually has no nutritional value. It only inflates. In our, our pre-service prayer uh, with the team, one of uh, our team felt like tonight God wanted to give people nutrients. And I just found that so spot on because he's removing this religious spirit, this yeast of the Pharisees, this leaven of the mind that has no nutritional value and he's trying to feed us. There's no life in leaven, it just inflates. And I feel like that's the byproduct of the religious spirit. It never adds life to the church. What are the three things that Satan always comes to do? Steal, kill, destroy. The religious spirit actually brings death. It's, the most, uh, it's probably the most beautiful spirit you'll find because it looks really good on the outside. It's a whitewashed tomb, but inside there's nothing but death. It inflates a person in their own mind. Remember, these are uh, leavens of the mind. It inflates people's minds to operate from a place of pride. Pride is the byproduct of the religious spirit. In James 4, 6, here's your warning against pride. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If there's anything in this world that should scare you away from pride, it's this, is that God will actually resist you. I don't care how right you are. I don't care what someone has done to you. The minute, the minute that we enter into pride, even if by the world's standards, you know, we really should be moving in that thought. The minute that we operate in pride is the minute God says, I, I don't work with the proud. Oh yeah, your facts are right, right? You can be 100% right with your facts, but 100% wrong because of your heart. And pride is actually one of the most stubborn strongholds that there is. Uh, it's one of the most stubborn things to remove, and it's one of the most stubborn things to correct. And the reason is because pride actually dulls the voice of the Lord in our lives. Pride dulls his voice. And listen, if you're not hearing his voice, you're probably going to start listening to your own voice. When we start listening to our own voice, what we'll do is we'll idolize our thoughts, our emotions, our ways, instead of the king and his ways. It's helpful to remember that the religious spirit is literally a demonic spirit. It's not this entity. It's not like this gas that comes in the room. It's actually a demonic entity. And it's not just wrong thoughts. It's something that influences your whole thought process. Okay? The religious spirit infiltrates the church. That's the scary part. We think, well, I'm saved. I'm never going to have to deal with the religious spirit. Because you're saved, you will deal with the religious spirit. Who is the church? That's right, just checking. 2 Timothy 3 says that the religious spirit actually tries to have you, the church, have a, an appearance of godliness but denying its power. That's its job. It's to make you look really pretty on the outside but to actually deny his power because we're embracing a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who brings power. And the minute that we embrace the religious spirit, power goes away. That's it. One of the main goals of the religious spirit is to substitute religious activity 
for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Religious activity is a terrible substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, everything Satan does is a counterfeit. He tries to counterfeit the third person of the Trinity with fleshly actions. This is so important that Jesus says, hey, warning, beware, heads up, don't get tripped up by this. It's interesting that Jesus, can you go back to where, I think it's Mark 8, 15 slide. It's interesting that he says, watch out, beware of the religious folks. He doesn't say, watch out for the demon-possessed. He doesn't say, watch out for lepers. He doesn't say, watch out for those who are sick or hurting. He doesn't say, watch out for prostitutes. He doesn't say, watch out for the physically disabled. He doesn't say, watch out for the unrighteous sinner. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of this mindset that actually comes from and instills pride into us. So Jesus warns to be on guard about being influenced by this leaven, right? Watch out, guard your heart. And anytime that Jesus warns us about something, it's an indicator that our natural minds will probably tend to drift that way. So he needs to tell us, heads up, the kingdom is upside down. You have to repent. You have to change the way you think or you'll miss this. So how does the religious spirit operate? Well, we know it creates pride, but it usually operates through distraction. Did you know that good things can often be distraction? We think that bad things are distraction. They are. But I'm going to say some things that if you take them out of context, which people always do, I'm prepared for the out of context haters. Did you know that prayer can be a distraction? Prayer can be religious. Did you know that fasting can be a religious stumbling block? Get ready. Did you know that speaking in tongues can be a religious stumbling block? Did you know that anything that you do from the flesh as a substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit is actually coming from the religious spirit? It wants to replace the move and heart of the Holy Spirit with fleshly actions that just look good. Uh, Dan Muller once said this quote, um, the pure in heart are actually the most susceptible to the religious spirit. And the reason is because it, it comes usually from this zeal for the Lord, from a right heart to want to please him. And if the enemy can have our attention, even with good things, even with reading 37 chapters of your Bible every single day, if he can distract us with good things, then he can have our heart and he can have our destiny. The enemy's goal is to get our hearts, is to get our minds, because then he can have our destiny. And the church, unfortunately, has conditioned ourselves to want to know what to think. We want to know what do we think, right? What's the right, what's the right opinion? What's the right facts? What's the wrong opinion? What do I need to believe? What is the correct way of doing this thing? And listen, those are actually good thoughts. The problem is we'll run too far with that. And essentially what we're telling our leaders and our pastors or even the Lord himself is, hey, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Just tell me the rules, God. That's all I want to know. Tell me the Christian rules. If I know the Christian rules, then I can behave appropriately. And all that is is saying that I want to go back under the law. 
I want the rules. The religious spirit is so deceptive because it fills people's lives with seemingly good activities. And when we say like, whoa, that's actually not the Lord, you can say, well, I just read 37 chapters. I read the Bible all day. I fasted for three weeks. I evangelized. How can you tell me that's not what the Lord wants? I can show you the scriptures. Yes, you can. And you're absolutely right. Those actually can be wonderful tools that the Lord gives us as a blessing. But if it's coming from the wrong heart, the Lord over and over and over throughout scripture says, get away from me. I don't want that. I reject that offering. Just asking him for the rules is asking to remove ourselves from the responsibility of relationship. Rules aren't relationship. You might do the right things, but that's the heart of the religious spirit is just doing the right things. His blessing on our lives isn't from laws. It isn't from rules. It isn't from religious activities. His blessing and his favor and his heart on our lives are because of our hearts. That's what he's paying attention to. His name is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Not God near us. Not God who knows about us. God with us. Just his name alone indicates relationship is necessary. He's with us. God could have created, you know, a 2700 volume Bible. And, you know, you have to buy a whole house just to store the scriptures. And in this, you know, million page document, it could have had every answer to every problem that any human would ever have for the rest of eternity. But he didn't do that. Instead, he gave us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is called our comforter. And he sent Jesus and he says, Jesus is now your teacher. He says, the Holy Spirit will actually lead us into all truth and reveal all the things that the Father has given to the Son. And it's through interaction. It's through relationship. It's through asking. It's through firsthand seeking and knocking. It's not through a book. Careful, Sam. Can't talk about the Bible that way. The Bible is death without the Holy Spirit leading you through it. It is absolutely the heartbeat of the spirit of religion wants to go by the letter of the law. But the letter brings death, the spirit brings life. It's hard to look at him and take him up as our counselor if we're not having an actual conversation with him. Let me know you guys are okay. We're on the home stretch. One of the key attributes of the religious spirit is it resists change. The religious spirit will resist change. And, uh, God is a God of change. He's a God of change. God doesn't change, but the Bible says he's always doing a new thing, right? His nature, his character always remain the same. That part of him never changes, but his works are always new. They're always new. Don't look at that thing of the past and say, God, do it again. Say, no, God, thank you for that thing of the past. Now build upon it. Do something new. That's asking for rain in the day of rain. This is the importance of hearing the now voice of God, the right now voice of God. Yes, the now voice of God for our generation. We'll find that out and we'll give our whole lives to it. But knowing what he is doing and saying now is every bit as important. In Genesis 22, we're not going to read it, but it's the famous story of Abraham and Isaac and Abraham taking Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. And it says that Abraham 
took Isaac up this mountain, and Isaac was the son of promise. He was the one who Abraham had been waiting for. And God says, hey, you're going to go up there, and you're going to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham says, okay. And then nine verses later, in the same chapter, so this, maybe it's days, maybe it's hours later, God then comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, don't touch the boy. Let me rewind that, because I think some of you missed it. He says, Abraham, there's the mountain, get Isaac, go up there and kill this son. And then nine verses later, God's like, hey, Abraham, don't touch him. Did God change his mind? I don't think so. I think what, what we're, we need to learn from this is that God spoke to Abraham with a very specific message for a very specific time. And then nine verses later, he speaks a very, another very timely word that Abraham actually needed to have relationship with him to hear. God didn't want Isaac. He wanted Abraham's heart. There is a necessity in hearing what God is saying in this hour. In this hour, ask Abraham. Had Abraham lived off that word, his, his future, his destiny, the call on Abraham's life would have been killed. When we act on yesterday's word alone, we will often miss God and will often kill the promise that he's trying to give us. But if we are willing to give God our Isaac, he is more than willing to give us Jesus. He's more than willing to put that ram in the thicket. I don't remember where I read this, but within the past few months, I read this quote that change is the proof of trust. Change is the proof of trust. In other words, when things change, it means that he trusts us with the new thing. Change is the proof of his trust over our lives. Because he's a God of change. He doesn't change, but he always does a new thing. And when he does something new, yes, it might seem uncomfortable, but it's proof that he trusts us. We have to constantly be developing this appetite for the new wine, this, this now word from God. Because while the word of God, right, the Bible never changes, what he speaks to each generation is very different. I don't want another Jesus people movement. I bless that. I celebrate it. It changed the world. But he's not trying to repeat an old thing. He's trying to do a new thing. Isaiah 43, 19. God says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. When does it spring forth? Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God does not say, behold, I'm redoing an old thing. He says, I'm doing a new thing. Daniel 2.21 says that God changes the times and the seasons. He doesn't change, but he sure does change the times. He sure does change the seasons. I find this so interesting that in, in Revelation, Jesus tells uh, seven times, he tells the churches that they need to hear what the Spirit is saying present tense, what he is saying. And again, he tells them that seven times. And if you, if you know about the prophetic, uh, biblically, the number seven is this sign of fullness and completion. In other words, you need to always be hearing what he's saying. You need to hear the now voice of God. The spirit of religion 
the design of it is so that we don't hear the now voice of God. It's so that we only know what he did previously. He'll often, the enemy will often send the religious spirit to impact our minds. Um, we've talked about this in the past. The mind is actually our flesh, but it, our heart is spiritual. The religious spirit tries to wear us out mentally. Have you ever gotten into an argument with a Pharisee? They don't go to your heart. They don't go to how much you love him. They don't go to any of that. They go to your mind and they weigh you down with words, winds of doctrine. And what the religious spirit does is it tries to move our relationship with the Lord from our hearts up to our heads. And that creates an idol out of intellect. Now listen, we got to be careful. We've talked about this in the past too. God isn't opposed to our minds. He's opposed to the unrenewed mind, right? Romans 12 too talks about be transformed through the renewal of your mind. You can have a spiritual mind. It's called the mind of Christ, which Paul says you now have. But it's the unrenewed mind that actually wars with God. And it tries to make an intellectual understanding superior to a heart relationship. The mind is the flesh, but the heart is the spirit. And when we operate from intellect, from the flesh, instead of the heart, which is the spirit, we won't be able to hear his voice. Did you know God, throughout scripture, never talks to your mind? He talks to your heart. And he says, do you not understand? Has your heart become hardened? He doesn't say, don't you understand? Is your brain hardened? No, he says, has your heart hardened? You don't have any understanding. Ephesians talks about opening the eyes of your heart, not your brain. It's because your mind is the flesh. And he never operates through the flesh. He operates through the spirit. When we can't hear his voice, we become spiritually insensitive. And any resistance to a move of God, a new move of God, is most often resisted by people from the old move of God. God is not purposefully withholding things from people who are in an old move of God because he's angry with them. He withholds things because he loves them and doesn't want to destroy them. Jesus talks about this with the wineskins. Jesus very clearly says that new wine destroys old wineskins. If you're an old wineskin, please don't pray for new wine. Pray for a new wineskin so you can hold new wine. Okay. Just to be clear, uh, Opposition to a new move of God doesn't come from anointed leaders of an old move of God, right? Think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was, was the predecessor. Like he led the way and, and paved the way for the Christ to come into the world. And he actually blessed the new wineskin. John actually says, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. And the context of this is, is it's actually talking about a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And, and resistance didn't come from the anointed leader of the old move of God. Opposition always comes from unanointed leaders from the old move of God. The example is the Pharisees. The attitude of the Pharisees was the exact opposite of John. John says, I must decrease, he must increase. 
The Pharisees took an opposite path and they ended up killing Jesus. The last thing that the Pharisees wanted to do was decrease because that would make them lose their position of authority. And the religious spirit wants authority at all costs. Within religious circles, the religious spirit makes people fear losing their positions of authority, which is something that the Pharisees constantly came and challenged Jesus about. Who gave you permission to do this? Whose authority are you operating under? They were the religious spirit. That was the leaven of the Pharisees. The main concern of the religious spirit is to get people to ask, what am I going to lose by this instead of what is the kingdom going to gain by this? I want to pray over you guys. I feel like I'm done preaching. We got more, but I don't think he's got any more for tonight. I think he's done. Um, can everybody just stand up? And I want to pray a few things that the Lord put on my heart. It's actually not really related very much to the, any of the things we talked about, but that's okay. We're going to follow the wind whatever direction it wants to go. Uh, hold your hands out. I want you to receive this. There's nothing special about holding your hands out. This is not something that we uh, make a doctrine out of. It's really just us taking a step of faith and we're saying, like, I will posture myself physically for what my spirit is doing. Uh, the spirit is the greater reality. I'm going to posture myself to receive in this moment. And if it helps, just hold your hands out. You don't have to. There's nothing more spiritual about that. But I want to pray these things over you. I, want, um, I, was, I was with the Lord this week a lot. And he just started giving me thoughts, uh, thoughts to pray. And I feel like these are things for our house. And these are places that we're going to be going. So let me just speak these over you and, and receive these things. Father, bring out who you need to bring out. Raise up who you need to raise up. Tear out who you need to tear out. Right? We've been praying this prayer for oh, about a year now. Uh, God, take whatever you want. Shake whatever you want. Purify whatever you want. Bring us those who are called to be, be here. And he reminded me of uh, when David brought the ark back into Jerusalem. It says that David um, chose 30,000 of the choicest men. And these, these choice men, uh, they were celebrating with David, with all of their might. And the reason is because the presence was coming in. And I feel like, Father, send us those who will celebrate with all of their might just because your presence is here. Bring us the mighty men, mighty women. Bring us the orphans and the widows. Let us bless them. Bring us the rich and the poor, the high and the lowly. Bring us those with fires and passion in their hearts. And he said, those with passion in their hearts, their eyes will be filled with gladness. Just like Luke 24, Father, open our minds to understand the scriptures. Holy Spirit, bring revelation and truth. And then this was the one that I just felt like I need to pray this probably every day for the rest of my life. It was, God, help me to look more like the Christ so that I can be trusted like the Christ. 
Father, make us look like Jesus so that we can be trusted the same way as Jesus. You love us the same way that you love him. You adore us the same way you adore the Son. Now, Father, grow us, make us like him so that we can be trusted like him. Just keep receiving this. This is more of a statement I want to read over you, but I felt like the Lord gave this to me when I went for a walk. He said, the blood of Jesus wasn't reactionary. It wasn't shed because we sinned. It was shed long before we ever had a chance to sin. It was shed long before we ever took our first breath on this planet. It was from before the beginning of time, and it's undefeated until after the end of time. It's in time, it is boundless and undefeated. The shed blood was a choice. Love is a choice and God is love. And he chose you before the foundations of the world to give every answer, to give every solution, to give every remedy. It was a choice given for our good. He was the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, before your sin. He didn't react to your sin and kill Jesus. He made a plan long before we ever walked on this planet. And it wasn't given out of his frustration. It was, it was his design and his will to create in us a heart of flesh and not stone. His blood is undefeated. His blood has no rival. No sin, no sickness, no evil can get in its way. And it's better than you could ask or think or imagine. It's a no-lose situation. And I feel like there are people here tonight who need to be covered again with the blood. I feel like there are people here who maybe don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you want to. Let me tell you, he wants to. He wants to cover you. He wants to be your everything. And we usually don't do this, but I felt permission to say this. Um, we're not going to have ministry time tonight. Well, we are going to have ministry time, but it's not going to be usual where people come to the front. If you just feel like you need a touch from the Lord, raise your hands really high, really high. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to have the kingdom living students who are in the room. You're going to go around and you're going to start praying for people. This isn't a dismissal. We're going to do one more thing. But raise your hands really high. And students, I want you, not staff, I want students to go look around and everybody go. All you students go. And they're just going to come alongside you and start blessing what the Lord is doing. If you don't know the Lord, let them know and they'll walk you into a relationship with him. Make sure that everybody whose hand is raised has at least one student. And I'll, I'll allow, if you're staff, I think we have more hands than students in the room. If you're staff, can you move around and find some people with their hands up? Don't disengage. Allow the Lord to minister. And you can pray out loud. Students, go for it. I don't care. You're not going to distract us. We're, <laughs> when we give the Lord space, it's never a distraction. When we make room for him, it's never a distraction. If anything, we're the ones who are distracting from his agenda and his plans. And we're going to give him some space. And if this is new to you, that's okay. We're just going to let um, people receive from the Lord. If you don't know what to do, just start partnering with him. In your heart, blessing what the Lord is doing. The Lord always wants to move. He always wants to touch. He always wants to do new things in people. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. A new thing. Now, 
Do you not perceive it? Father, we never want to miss a moment. We never want to miss a moment with you. I think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus who walked with the risen Christ. He opened up the scriptures in Luke 24. He opened up scripture to them. And then after he left, it says, did our hearts not burn within us? In other words, he was here and we didn't even know it. Or I think about Jacob, right? When he has a dream and he wakes up, he says, I didn't even realize that this is the very household of God. Father, never let us miss a moment with you. Yeah, get them. Mark them. Mark these people tonight. Mark the hungry ones. He doesn't turn a blind eye to your affection. There's never an ounce of your devotion, of your love towards him that he disregards. Students, staff, you keep praying for them. Uh, Everybody else, look up here, eyes on me. He's worthy. He's worthy of whatever we can give him. For the rest of our lives, we need to find out what he's doing in our generation and give our whole lives to it. Don't let that be a slogan. Don't let that be a motto. Let that be a lifestyle. But here's where I'm challenging you tonight. We, as much as we need to know what he's doing in our generation, we have to hear the now voice of God. We have to know what he's saying over us, over our families, over our jobs, over our schools, over our, our, our friends. Listen, hear his voice. Hear his voice. He's always speaking. And my challenge to you is this. This week, set time apart and say, God, Jesus, you promised that I would hear your voice. I'm your sheep, and I will hear your voice. I'm going to commit whatever you need to commit to him, five minutes a day, ten minutes a day, whatever. Give him something and let him fill that space. When we ask him to come, he doesn't have to, but he always does. And I don't mean at church. I mean in our lives. You, technically, in the new covenant, you are, the, you are the church. You are the tabernacle that he dwells in. You are where he resides. And so, Father, thank you for this house. Thank you for the things that you're doing. Thank you that we get to lay bricks with you and build what you're saying to build. Thank you, God, for exposing darkness. We just, we just run into the light right now. You take care of the darkness. We'll, we'll run to the light. Thank you for exposing things. Thank you for your conviction. Would you just bring light and life and hope where it wasn't before? Would you bring righteousness and peace and joy, Holy Spirit? Yeah, from tonight on, lifestyles change. Lifestyles change. Uh, That people in this room would hear from you every single day. And I don't mean just uh, in a I love you type thing, but Lord, that you would actually, that their ears, the eyes of their heart would actually be opened, that their understanding coming from their heart would actually be opened. So hearts awaken. Hearts awaken in this room. We glorify you, Jesus, and bless you. Amen. For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5, live at Kahalamu. Aloha.